This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruneau. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Jolian Thomas, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Thomas is the author recently of Varieties of Religious Freedom in Japanese Buddhist Responses to the 1899 Religions Bill, published in the Asian Journal of Law and Society in 2016, as well as Faking Liberties, Religious Freedom in American-Occupied Japan, forthcoming from the University of Chicago Press in spring of 2019. Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you for having me, and thanks for the good work that you're doing with this podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, I've had several episodes with scholars looking at religious studies, but often these textbook narratives we get of religion during the Meiji period focus on Shinto, and then where Buddhism does come in, it's usually things like the separation of Shinto and Buddhism with Shinbutsu Bunni, the resulting destruction of Buddhism, Haibutsu Kishaku, and so Buddhism gets kind of a secondary position. Now, your research has looked at Buddhism all the way, or religious practice, I should say, all the way from the Meiji period up to contemporary Japan, looking especially at Buddhism. So could you give us a little bit of that story of what happens to Buddhism during the Meiji period? Sure. So I guess the first thing that I should say is that I'm happy to talk about Buddhism, but it's almost impossible to talk about Buddhism without also making reference to the tradition that we now call Shinto. And indeed, the story of modern Shinto is is in many ways the story of modern Buddhism as well. And I'll sort of unpack what I mean by that. So having said that, we see in the Meiji era, I think if I had to compress it down into one keyword, it would be anxiety or perhaps uncertainty. You know, Buddhists had had a very stable position in Japanese society for most of the Edo period through their sort of special relationship with the Tokugawa government as effectively census keepers under the Danka Seido or the Terauke Seido, the system where households had to register with local Buddhist temples to sort of prove that they were not Christians. So Buddhists had this very stable position. It was premised on the notion that occupational groups like Buddhists had a particular role to play in that political order. And then by the end of the Tokugawa period, we already start to see that stability begin to crumble. And so with the influx of American ideas um, and global ideas about what religion is and what role religion should play in society, Buddhists find themselves really kind of on the defensive. Now, of course, the story that that we've all heard, the one that you uh, alluded to a moment ago, is the story of the Meiji Restoration, the separation of kami from Buddhas, the Shinbutsu Hanzen of 1868, and then the persecution of Buddhists that happened over the next few years. I think that story is is true, although, of course, many scholars have started to complicate it by saying that there are regional differences, that the narrative of Buddhist victimization is problematic, and the sort of reinscribed narrative of victimhood is one that might get in the way of understanding the more complicated relationships, uh, political and doctrinal relationships that are going on. But the thing that I want to focus on is that if Buddhists had had the luxury of thinking of themselves mostly in terms of sectarian differences, you know, as Tendai or as Jodo Shinshu or Taniha or whatever, the introduction of the category religion as a, as a diplomatic category and the persecution of the first few years of Meiji really forced them to think of themselves as Buddhists 
first and foremost. And this is sort of counterintuitive to us, you know, from the perspective of the 21st century, because we think, oh, well, you know, Buddhism is a religion has existed as this discrete tradition for all this time. But I, I think that we shouldn't underestimate the power of those political decisions in the early Meiji era and the influence of those political decisions in really making Buddhists think of themselves as Buddhists first and foremost. So what does this look like? Well, of course, we have the separation of Kami and Buddhas, which means that people have to make these decisions about what counts on the grounds of their temple as being Buddhist and what doesn't. And, you know, there's been great work, like Sarah Thal's work, for example, is really good at showing how people make those decisions. Jim Cattellar as well. So that's one thing. But then another thing is that because the Haibutsu Kishaku movement had resulted in all of this language about Buddhists being degenerate or about not fitting with the Japanese national character. There's this apologetic Buddhist discourse that emerges in the immediate wake of the Haibutsu Kishaku moment that has Buddhists saying, hey, not only are we good people, which they had to say, but you need us and you need us for these reasons. Now, I just realized that I, I said Haibutsu Kishaku without translating it. So this sort of like destroy the Buddhas, expel Shakyamuni. It's this movement that was trying to eradicate the traces of Buddhism in favor of this ostensibly local tradition. But the recent scholarship on Shinto has pretty clearly suggested that this notion of Shinto as being the indigenous religion of Japan was also being sort of invented over the course of the Meiji era and the couple of centuries that immediately preceded it. So I mentioned that anxiety is the keyword. So there's also an anxiety on the part of the Shinto-leaning ideologues to establish what Shinto is once and for all. And so what we see in the first couple of decades of the Meiji era is multiple parties trying to fix boundaries and trying to say, well, is this Buddhist? Is that Shinto? What's really local? What's foreign? And, and so forth. And I think that that, that helps us get a sense of what Buddhism is, or what Buddhists, I should say, are thinking about as they engage in their various endeavors in, in the first couple of decades of that era. And then from the second half of the Meiji period, as you said, this idea of Shinto gets really invented as, as an invented tradition. And it's from this time period when Shinto really starts to become centralized around the person of the emperor. And then going into the early 20th century, and certainly into the 20s and 30s, you get this embracing of state Shinto to the point where practices of Shinto are, are said to be part of what it means to be a good Japanese subject. So I'm really curious what happens to practices of Buddhism and Buddhists during this time period? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I, I'm going to just bookmark one thing that you said about the category of state Shinto. It's a category that I actually don't use in, in my own research because I think it's a distraction. And in the sense that the category of state Shinto, it turns out, was sort of retrojected onto the past. And so I, I, I'll, I'll explain more about what I mean by that in, in a moment. But one of the things that I found myself doing in my forthcoming book, Faking Liberties, was you know, I talk about state Shinto, but I, I focus a lot on what Buddhists were saying and what Buddhists were doing as a way of clarifying that category of state Shinto. So I'm not the first person to do this. You know, um, Hans Martin Kramer has talked about Shimaji Mokurai, the prominent Jodo Shinshu priest, who sort of helps to theorize about the distinction between religion and not religion and helps to set up this way of thinking about Buddhism as belonging to the category of religion and shrine rites belonging to the category of not religion. 
But one of the things that I found really interesting is that in the wake of that distinction, Buddhists worked really hard in the last part of the Meiji era to continue to make that distinction and to try and make it make sense. And this comes through in this sort of Buddhist obsession with what is going to happen to them under the Meiji constitution once it goes into effect in 1890. And they're trying to figure out how their customary rights that they had enjoyed under the Tokugawa regime might be maintained or preserved or recovered under the new Meiji constitutional regime. And a lot of this attention focuses, and admittedly, this I'm sort of biased because I, I wrote this book on religious freedom, so I'm thinking about religious freedom, but a lot of this attention focuses on this category of religious freedom. They're trying to figure out what does it mean, what are Buddhists supposed to do in the context of a religious freedom guarantee, and who gets religious freedom. So by the late 1890s, we see Buddhists vehemently talking with themselves and to outside parties about who is going to be the beneficiary of the religious freedom guarantee. One of the things that they virtually all agree on is that Christians don't get religious freedom. Christians don't get religious freedom because Christianity is not an official Japanese religion. And so what the Buddhists are trying to do in general is to preserve customary rights or a sort of corporatist version of religious freedom by advancing this notion of a ko-nin-kyo. They're trying to establish these, this notion that certain religious traditions have been officially recognized by the Japanese government, and those religious traditions are the ones that can benefit from religious freedom. Well, it turns out that the certain religious traditions in that case only refers to Buddhist sects, because Buddhist sects have existed in Japan for a long amount of time. Shinto is, has been categorized as being not religious. And so we have this development of this new Buddhist theorization about religion-state relations that has largely gone under-examined up until now. And one of the things that is interesting is that notion of Buddhism specifically as an officially recognized religion pops up again and again across the next several decades. So even after we leave the Meiji era, even after there are changes in the administration of religions, specific Buddhists keep coming back to this idea that religious freedom is not something that should be granted on egalitarian grounds, but actually should be granted on the basis of historical precedent. And I think that really helps us understand both how the politics of the Meiji era impacted Buddhists, but also how Buddhists took um, some of the new intellectual developments of the Meiji era about conceptualizing religion and took that forward into later time periods. But to talk about your question with Buddhists, one of the things that we see is this explosion of textual production on the part of Buddhists starting around the 1870s and, and 1880s. I'm thinking here particularly of transsectarian magazines. So these are magazines like Meikyo Shinshi and a few others, Chugai Nippo, comes to be developed eventually in, in the 1890s. And these become repositories of Buddhist opinion and conflicting opinion about various things that are related to the way that Buddhists should be in society. At the same time that we have this explosion of print, I should mention for historians who might be interested in this material, there are ongoing attempts to make sense of all of this print going on here in Japan where people are making databases and so forth, trying to figure out exactly what we have access to and so forth. But in addition to the explosion of print, there's also the development of a new kind of Buddhist sermonizing called Enzetsu, which is not a sermon, it's not a lecture on doctrine, 
but it's actually a sort of entertaining mode of providing information about Buddhism to both Buddhists themselves in terms of priests, but also to lay audiences who may be like slightly intellectually inclined. So I like to think of Enzetsu as sort of like the TED Talk of the Buddhist world in this time period. You know, it's academic but it's formulaic. It's pitched towards an audience that doesn't necessarily need to have a ton of background information. And so Buddhists are trying all of these different ways to explain what exactly Buddhism is. And one of the things that comes up in this is that there's very little discussion about like proper ritual protocols. There's very little discussion about what people should be doing in terms of their sort of moral lives, except in, in a very abstract sense. But there is a lot of talk about, well, you know, like this is where we're different from the Shinto priests or especially a lot. I'm going to come back to this key word of anxiety, a lot of anxiety about Christians and what Christians are doing and how Buddhism should be more or less like Christianity. So we see this new Buddhist obsession with social work because the Christians, both foreign Christians and then also Japanese converts, are really good at doing charity work and maybe Buddhists should do that too. There's also a focus on education and the language that comes up in terms of education kind of varies depending on the individual, but let's just say that there's a general interest in the role of Buddhists as people who can be not only moral exemplars for lay people, but also for Buddhists to be engaging in some sort of outreach that helps uplift people both intellectually and morally. That's a great point about the need to problematize this term state Shinto and maybe not use it so uncritically. But this idea of state Shinto is certainly one that the American occupation forces had when they came into Japan. And I, I'm recalling this film, Our Job in Japan, where they say, you know, it was the state Shinto, all this mumbo jumbo they brought up from the past in order to brainwash the people of Japan. And they really targeted state Shinto as something that led to the militarism of Japan and something that had to be eradicated. So I understand you have this forthcoming book, Faking Liberties looking at religious freedom in American-occupied Japan. So how does the occupation impact religion in Japan? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked that question. One, because I'm really excited about the book, and also because I think that the occupation is the moment when state Shinto comes into being. The word state Shinto we see earlier in the 1920s as Kokateki Shinto in the work of this scholar Kato Genchi. He's a, a scholar of religion who's mostly based at Todai. And then his phrase gets picked up by D.C. Holtom, who was an American missionary who spent most of his life in Japan and wrote a series of books on Shinto. And Holtom's work happened to be picked up by American policymakers in the 1940s as virtually the only real academic work that people could find about Japanese religious and political life. I should note, too, that before people had settled on Holtom, most Americans prior to the war and then during the first few years of the war assumed that it was Buddhists, not Shintoists, who were responsible for Japanese militarism or what they began to call ultranationalism. This point has largely gone overlooked, but the American discourse about Japanese Mikadoism and stuff like that 
often focuses energy on Buddhists as ultranationalists through the 1920s, 30s, and, and then into the early 1940s. So then the narrative changes in the middle of the war where people start to attribute Japanese militarism to Shinto because people have started to pick up D.C. Holtam's previously obscure work. That remains true in the first few months of the occupation. So when the occupation started, the occupiers had basically one objective related to religion, which was to promote religious freedom. That was a positive objective. And then the negative one was to make sure that no ultra-nationalistic movements were allowed to, quote, hide behind the cloak of religion, end quote. So that's all they had said. The occupation formally begins on September 2nd. The Civil Liberties Directive is promulgated on October 4th, 1945. And then two days later, the State Department official is on an NBC public radio program called the University of the Air. His name's John Carter Vincent. And he says in a sort of offhand way that Shinto as it is a religion of individual Japanese people won't be interfered with, but Shinto as a state religion, national Shinto that is, will go. And this is the first time that the occupiers who were based in Japan had heard about this policy of eradicating Shinto as a national religion. And it's important that Vincent, this guy who makes the radio announcement, uses the word national Shinto because the language of state Shinto had not yet coalesced. So I argue in chapter five of the book that it was actually after this announcement was very precipitously made and very publicly made that the occupiers were forced to come up with a policy that would square the two things. So on the one hand, they have to promote religious freedom. On the other hand, they have to eradicate a national religion. And it's complicated because trying to do those two things simultaneously is impossible. And it's furthermore complicated because Japan doesn't have a state religion by law. So the result, the sort of outcome of all of that, was that this mid-level occupation bureaucrat, William Bunce, reads a bunch of scholarship on religion. He sort of does this crash course with the University of Tokyo scholar of religion, Kishimoto Hideo. And as a result of all of that, he uses state Shinto as a way of basically highlighting Japanese practices as a bad sort of secularism. So it's that Japanese people don't properly distinguish religion from the state that causes the problems that we've seen here. That's the source of ultranationalism. But also ultranationalism is what causes Japanese people to fail to properly distinguish between religion and the state. Well, holding all of that in mind, if we think about the category state Shinto, Basically, any time prior to the occupation, what people have been inclined to call state Shinto, I think we need to be quite cautious about. And so in, in the book, I'm looking at ways that different parties, usually at the local level, are trying to distinguish between religion and not religion. And I think that that's really the essence of the governance of religion and national politics in what I call the Meiji constitutional period, is that there's this ongoing anxiety and uncertainty about what counts as religion and what doesn't. And when we think more broadly about the occupation, it's these policies of demilitarization and democratization. So many of the policies that the occupation embraces are filtered through this lens of democratization, such as even agrarian reform, mm -hmm. uh, the idea of if, if we promote this Jeffersonian yeoman farming system, then this will encourage grassroots democratic movements. 
Now, you title your book very tantalizingly, Faking Liberties, Religious Freedom in American Occupied Japan. So is the faking aspect, is this coming from this conflation of religious liberty with democratization, perhaps? Yeah. So as other people have already documented in exhaustive detail, the occupation is rife with ironies. And that's one of the things that I'm pointing to with the title. So, you know, in the name of promoting freedom of expression, the Americans censored every document that was published in the country. In the name of promoting religious freedom, they subjected Shinto shrines to surveillance. They actually quashed some marginal religious movements. And another thing related to religious freedom specifically is that in the name of religious freedom, they gave preferential treatment to Christian missionaries on the presupposition that democracy can't happen without Christianity. Basically, that Christianity is the driving force behind democratization. So faking liberties in one sense points to these ironies that characterize the occupation project. In another sense, it points to the fact that the occupiers spoke with a lot of confidence about what freedom was, both religious freedom, but also freedom more broadly. And official occupation pronouncements generally describe that sort of thing in very confident terms. But then if you look at the occupation records at the National Archives, you see that the occupiers vehemently disagree with each other on just about everything. In a way, it's a very American project in that it's just shot through with all of this disagreement about all kinds of topics, including what freedom is, what religion is, what religious freedom is or could even mean. So another sort of thing, the occupiers sort of narrative that they're bringing freedom to the Japanese people masks the fact that they disagree about what freedom is. And then the title points to a third thing, which is that the occupation narrative that Japan lacked religious freedom and then the occupiers brought it is based on this idea that even though religious freedom appeared in the Meiji constitution of 1889, it was false, that it was fake and that the Japanese government had basically just been paying lip service to this notion of religious freedom, but did not actually grant religious freedom to Japanese citizens. So in order to deal with that part, I actually spend the whole first half of the book looking at what practices of religious freedom were like under what I call the Meiji constitutional regime. So I look at what Buddhists were saying about religious freedom and how they were positioning themselves vis-a-vis both Christians, but also vis-a-vis each other. I look at things like the ways that various parties were responding to legislation like the Religious Organizations Law that was passed in 1939. And I also uh, spent some time looking at Japanese-American Buddhists in the American territory of Hawaii and the ways that they were using religious freedom as an apologetic category, while also appealing to Japanese diplomats to speak up on their behalf. And in all of these cases, we have Japanese diplomats, Japanese Buddhists, Shinto priests, politicians, all kinds of parties who are constantly talking about religious freedom. I mean, it is impossible to miss unless you're deliberately assuming that religious freedom doesn't exist. And so one of the points of the book is that we've got this post-occupation narrative about Japan being bereft of religious freedom. And that's just a politically driven narrative that is utterly false. Japan was characterized by a robust discourse on religious freedom. Lots of people were concerned about it. The problem is that they just disagreed vehemently with one another about what religion was and how to free it.
so if we could talk about your first book now, Drawing on Tradition, Manga, Anime, and Religion. Also a great title. <laughs> Would you say that the, the occupation kind of sets a stage for contemporary religious practices in Japan, or is it more of a disruption in your mind? You know, in Faking Liberties, I talk about the occupation as both disruption and continuity. And I think that that's the safest way of describing it or depicting it. But let me talk about the ways that the occupation sort of set the stage for what we see in Japanese religious practice today. So one of the things that uh, happens with the occupation is that there's a disruption in the sense that religious freedom needs to become sort of universalized, and therefore religiosity needs to be treated as always being a matter of individual choice. Now, this may sound like utterly obvious to some listeners, but that's a byproduct of the fact that sort of Protestant models of religiosity as being a matter of individual choice are so dominant, especially in the English speaking world. But in Japan in 1945, it was not necessarily the case that religiosity was understood to be personal and elective. And so the occupiers worked very hard with Japanese interlocutors who are in the Ministry of Education, scholars of religion, scholars of law, to create this notion of religion as personal and elective. So to offer one example, there's an illustrated guide to the Constitution that was published in 1947. And in that guide, you see like three members of the same family who are all simultaneously practicing different religious traditions. The dad is like chanting the Lotus Sutra, the daughter is singing a Christian hymn, and the son is chanting a Shinto Norito. And so this is a way of sort of visually encapsulating what religion is, is like now. So if we take that forward, we see that in the wake of the occupation, Japanese people kind of took this, took this idea of religion as choice in a direction that I don't think the occupiers anticipated because the occupiers assumed, and many of their Japanese interlocutors assumed, that everybody was religious before they were anything else, that at the heart of every human was this religious self. And what we see after a brief efflorescence of interest in religion in the wake of the occupation is the rapid decline of interest in religion. And so choice turns out to be a choice to not be religious, as opposed to the choice to choose the right religion for oneself. And so today, Japan presents a sort of statistical conundrum for scholars of religion because by some statistics, the country is exceedingly religious. You know, I can walk out my door here in Kyoto and I can see probably 200 different religious edifices in the space of two kilometers. So that's one way. And if you go by official governmental statistics, the religious population of Japan exceeds the actual population of Japan by about one and a half times. But on the other hand, if you talk to average people on the street, it's only going to be about two people out of 10 who tell you that they have any sort of religious affiliation. So the occupiers sort of failed in a way. I mean, if you want to talk about it as success or failure, the choice that they were so keen on presenting ended up being a choice to not be religious. And I don't think that's something that they anticipated. That's a great point about one of the great ironies. You know, people uh, will say that they're not religious even while they understand exactly what to do when they go to the temple or the shrine. Mm -hmm. And then especially when you look at how many anime and manga have depictions of religious practices and other types of religious elements within them. And you were talking about the animated constitution, and, and that ties directly into the way that religious practices are animated yeah. uh, in anime and manga. So can you paint a picture for us about how this has come to be? Yeah, so when I started drawing on tradition, my thinking was that I didn't know what religion was. 
because of this statistical conundrum I was just mentioning, I couldn't figure out what Japanese people meant when they said religion. So I thought, well, let's look for religion in an unlikely place. Like, let's look at something that no, like a lot of people wouldn't assume to be religious and, and see if that can help clarify the matter. So what I started doing was looking for religion in manga and anime, just as he suggested. So, oh, look, here's a bodhisattva. Oh, this looks like it's a depiction of apocalypse and so forth. And about midway through my field research, I realized that I was doing exactly the wrong thing. Because basically, as a scholar of religion, I was prefiguring what counted as religion, and I was trying to find it. And that's like super easy to do. If you want to look for something in any source, like you can figure out a way to find it. You know, you're sort of reading your own interests into it. So I turned from that to looking at two different things. I wanted to look at aspects of the manga and anime mediums themselves that might serve as sort of models for understanding religious practice. So how a manga is laid out, how panels are juxtaposed one to another, how they look on the page, how the passage of time is depicted and so forth. And also how, you know, manga will use the two Japanese types of onomatopoeia, gitaigo and gyongo, to sort of create this synesthetic experience where one is not only looking, but also almost sensing sounds and so forth. And then for anime to look at this technique called compositing that's used in cell animation, where it's not just that you draw images in rapid succession and, and show them in rapid succession like a flipbook, but you actually break images apart and move different layers of images to create the sense not only of movement, but also of depth. So I was trying to use those techniques as metaphors for how we might think about religiosity. So to take compositing, for example, it may be that in daily life, I just kind of live in what we think of as the real world, but it's also possible for me to superimpose onto the real world the illustrated world of an anime that I like, and perhaps even another imaginary world that is either gestured towards in that anime or that I understand to exist beyond that. And I can live in those three worlds simultaneously. And I think we see this in practices like anime seichi junrei, pilgrimage to anime sites where fans will like go to the place that was the setting for a particular anime, or in things like cosplay, where people are trying to sort of embody the character and bring that character into being, if temporarily, in what we think of as the real world. So the other thing that I was trying to do in drawing on tradition was to to talk with people <laughs> you know, um, uh, instead of instead of imposing my ideas on particular series. I wanted to ask people, well, you know, what do you think, and and how do you engage with this? And and some of this was direct interviews, and sometimes I sort of lurked on fan discussion boards to see how people were talking with each other without interacting with me as a researcher. And out of all of that, I saw people without any prompting saying, oh, you know, I watched this anime and this character inspired me to deepen my Christian faith. Or, you know, I, I talked with a, a manga artist who founded a religion. You know, a lot of his followers were people who had been fans of his manga. So rather than saying that manga and anime depict Japanese religious practice, I think rather that they're sort of vehicles for, and really good vehicles for thinking through what might be some alternate models of how religion or religiosity work. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. 
Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.